There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where historians get to punch myth in the face, right in the middle of the Oscars if they choose to. The podcast where you can shoot down misconceptions with unlimited ammo. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I am here with our nominee for Best Rager in a Supporting Role, Kyle Glover. Hello! And last week we took a swipe at popular thought, and this week we're going to turn the rage cannons to popular culture. It's movie week, dear ragers, a subject that gets all the rage going on all sides of the historical spectrum. And to suavely escort us along the red carpet this week, we welcome Robin Maguire of RM Military History, and Matthew Moss of the Armourer's Bench, and together you know them from the excellent podcast, Fighting on Film. Guys, welcome to History Rage. Thanks for having us. It's, it's great yeah, to be thank here. You. Good. Feeling angry? Yeah. I mean, we're sure we'll get there. <laughs> I was feeling mellow until we got started, but um, it's getting there now. Yeah. Getting there. Good. Blood pressure rising. Yeah. I mean, you know, just if you listen to 20 minutes of your own podcast, I'm sure you'll get as angry as you get there. <laughs> <laughs> So this whole episode came about uh, basically when we met at Hat Green back at Easter and you and Ian Sanders and I had quite the pod meet. I've been a listener for quite a while now and I know Kyle is as well. How did Fighting on Film come to start? Um, well, Rob and I got talking um, during lockdown of all things. So FOF is a well, it's basically a, a, a COVID lockdown project that um, we've managed to keep on going, which is great. Um, but Rob, Rob um, messaged me on Twitter um, and asked a couple of questions about. Was it Stens, Rob? Sten guns. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I happily, you know, provided a couple of facts. I think you were doing a, a live stream or something, weren't you? you wanted yeah, to, it was like, some Woody's thing. I was, I was trying to say how the SG forty four isn't a weapon that you win if you lose. Uh, isn't a weapon if you make if you're losing a war. So I wanted mm. to use Sten like facts to sort of counter it. Um, and then, yeah, and then Matt and me got talking. One of us said, why don't we do a film podcast? It was you. I think Matt said to me one evening, we were sort of, I think we got into a thing about obscure war movies that we'd seen. Yeah. And Matt was pulling up all these great ones. And so was I. And then Matt was like, I'd love to do a war movie podcast. And I went, okay, then cool. 
And I never thought about it for like a month. And then Matt hit me back one evening. He was like, what are we doing about that show? And then a month later, we were, you know, we, we put it into motion. And, and the rest is history, really, if um, you want to be cheesy. But that's literally how it came about. Matt just mentioned it one day and I forgot. And then he reminded me. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, the truncated, that's the truncated version, really. Yeah. That's the potted history. I mean, that's you know, it's very similar to us. Really, we did we did some videos at Chalk Valley where we just asked people, "What is the one thing that you really wish people would just get over?" And we got about five hits on that. And so, if we put it up on YouTube, and then we thought, "Yeah, this has worked. This is fun. We could do this," but we can't film it because basically everybody's locked down. And and lo and behold, it would make a podcast, and and here we are, and here you are, and great work, guys, so far. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so, because this is going to be a long, drawn-out episode of Rage, I imagine, then we're going to start into this um, really early. So I know you've come uh, to us with a particular Rage in mind. Um, so, guys, will you please tell our raging, baying mob of History Ragers what you wish people would just stop believing? Details don't matter. They do. Okay. Expand. Expand. Yeah. So when we started the pod, the thing we didn't want to do was be rivet countery and get into a war movie and why a war movie oh look, look they're not they've not got the right cross strap on that 37 webbing like i do it every week but i don't mention it in the show <laughs> because that strap adds absolutely nothing to a film that is inherently meant to be entertainment although it's historical entertainment they are meant to be entertaining so our mantra for the show was never we are going to get rivet countery we have a section in the show called the alley tally where we talk about the kit and things on the show mm -hmm. but we, we don't get a little um, bit rivet countery yeah we get a little bit rivet county but we don't do that to to show a film up we do it to bolster the film's credibility in a lot yeah of cases. credibility yeah exactly that's right yeah so that's where yeah. we do it but we try and take a film we try and pull out all the merits of a movie and then right at the end of the show will go into why we didn't perhaps like it but every war movie i think has something redeeming about it to a point but it's how much of a point you want to give it. Yeah. yeah. So in essence, what we're looking at here is that the war movie is not a documentary. And yeah, exactly. Such. Yeah. yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. You mentioned the Ali Tally in there, and I, certainly my experience has, has always been, it's less of the, yeah, that cross stripe is not in the right place there. Or that's just, it's usually Matt going, here is an obscure thing that's in that film, and that's freaking great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Um I, that's part of the fun with the alley tally because we like to pull out things that we notice that perhaps others wouldn't like so if it's something like recently we did um navy seals with charlie sheen and um and in that the whole film is based around some stolen stinger man pads which is an anti-aircraft weapon and in fact that the they're not actually stingers in the film they're uh, they're red eye the precursor to the stinger so you wouldn't you wouldn't it's not even important to the film it's a stinger for all intents and purposes but mm. you know i just thought i thought i'd mention it in that particular round of the alley tally because you know that's an interesting little bit of trivia and it might be a bit riveted countery but really yeah. you know you can go down the pub and go oh you know what those stingers in, in, in navy seals not stingers i'd love to know how many yeah. pub quizzes we've helped people win from that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what pubs do in that question but if it ever comes up people are shooing aren't they <laughs> You see, that's what you should be asking on your Twitter feed, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, right. Well, before we get too deep into rants, I'm going to challenge you in with a little bit of potential rivet counter because that's always good for getting the, the rage up. But 
you know, all those military historians, we all do it. You just said you just don't bring it on your show. So feel free free to bring it on our show. So before we get too deep into kind of examining all that, what, and I'm putting this to each of you as well, is number one, your worst offender. And number two, your best performer. So my worst offender is Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, 2017 Dunkirk. And my best offender is a film that came out in the same year, but got nowhere near as much kudos and viewing numbers as uh, Dunkirk got. And it's uh, Journey's End. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, sure. so what's, what's wrong with Dunkirk? Well, what's not wrong with Dunkirk? I mean, <laughs> okay. Issue, I appreciate we're only an hour long. No, no, I know. <laughs> the issue that I have with Dunkirk is that it is ostensibly a piece of cinema. It isn't a historical retelling of Dunkirk. As much as it would like you to believe that it is, I don't, this is my own opinion, I don't believe for a minute Nolan even really in depth thought about Dunkirk. I think he saw some photos. I think he was shown maybe like a documentary or two, but I don't think he set out to make an actual Dunkirk movie um, because I think the BBC 2004 series did a much better job of that and probably a fraction of the budget. Um, yeah. But it's just the little things that annoy me. You know, Dunkirk, when you see it in an aerial shot, it's not touched. It's like it's barely been bombed. That's because the Dunkirk uh, council were giving them a tax break to film there. There's a reason why Dunkirk looks nice and is untouched. There's barely any men on the beach. I know that there's parts of the beach where there weren't as much men, but you're trying to tell me Dunkirk, the town where every single BEF member was trying to get back to, has a, a line of like 30 or 40 chaps on a beach. Come on. Like, I want to see I want to see the budget that you have on screen. Atonement does it in 15 minutes. Yep. And that captures the essence of Dunkirk. It might not be 100% factually right, but it captures it on screen. And that's what you're doing when you set out to make a film about a historic event. You are putting it on screen. So don't put it flat. I want to see everything. I want to see millions of extras running around. I want to see it on screen because, unfortunately... Some people are going to come away from that and they're never going to pick up a book. They're never going to read anything else about that campaign. And they're going to think, oh, there's only about 30 or 40 chaps on the beach. And then Tom Hardy flew a guy, a guy did a spitfire down on the beach and he got captured. No, that's just not how it happened. <laughs> and it, but yet again, my complete you know, flip side of that is that technically it's a great film, you know, Everything about it is good. However, its representation of Dunkirk for me is poor. And then on the flip yeah, side... you can that, enjoy it. Yeah. And then... But... Exactly. It could do better. But best, of, I, best I performer... Best performer for me is Journey's End, or one of the best ones, because everything in Journey's End was really thought, thought really hard on. So we did an episode with Taff Gillingham, who was the military advisor. And... Yeah. The detail he went into, because he was allowed to go into this much detail by the, the stu- by the production team and the director, he made... Um, so the East Surrey Regiment was the regiment that R.C. Sheriff was in. So he made everyone in the cast wear Surrey Regiment um, badges uh, and things. Ribbons, so they were yeah. in the Surrey Regiment. Nice little callback. There's a bit at the end where they are attacked and it's the first day of the German Spring Offensive doesn't directly state that in the book. However, Taff said, look, everyone that went to see Journey's End in the 1920s would know how 
you know, know the effect of that first mm. day because it, it yeah, hit the Allied coming. forces like a brick wall. You know, they had not experienced anything like that up till that point, really. So he did that. Richard Van Emden, a good friend of Taft's, um, you know, written a lot of First World War books. He showed Taft a photo of uh, one of the trenches or after it had been attacked by German stormtroops. And they basically recreate that photo right at the end. And it just shows when advisors and studios can sort of find a level set, find a level pace and work together what they can achieve. And it, as Taft says, it costs you no more to get it right once you've hired me. Yeah, yeah, that is a remarkably good point. So that, that, that day of my two, I don't know about you, Matt. Well, I, I completely agree on that. I mean, first, before I like, launch into my two, you've, you've got to separate two different types of film that are made. You've got to separate the big blockbusters and small indie films which are trying, and then you've got the absolute shit tier, um, like Bargain Basement, we'll green screen it, the uniforms are shit, we've done no military training, here's yeah. Nicolas Cage's cousin, that kind of shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you, those... You I'm can, thinking we, He Who Dares Downing Street Siege rides up at the I top of that I haven't seen that. I, I, hear, I hear awful Don't. things. Um, <laughs> but if you, set, if you set those aside, like the stuff that is just like dross, and you look at films that have tried, like Dunkirk tries, mm. and I completely agree with Rob, that's my choice for Worst Defender, because you can tell that he's he's taken beats from the, from the operation... Dynamo and the evacuation and, and, and the, the fighting before it. But then he, he just mangles it. So at the very beginning, it's a lovely scene where the leaflets are coming down. He's walking down the street to Dunkirk, comes up to a barricade, and then the the, the massive crash of rifle fire, which is you know really striking at the time, and it's interesting sound design. But it it, it, it didn't happen. Like they The Germans weren't that close to Dunkirk. I mean, if it had been a village five miles out, that would have been mm. believable. But at that point, the Germans weren't that close to Dunkirk. So there's no way that they, they would have been shot at as he entered Dunkirk at that point. And then, as Rob alluded to, you've got all the, the, the nonsense with the RAF. Like, the film had a massive, brilliant chance to explain that the RAF was fighting inland to keep the, the Luftwaffe at bay but never covers that. It doesn't touch on it. It shows them fighting over the channel itself, which I'm, I'm sure it did happen. And I'm, I'm not an expert in RAF during, you know, operation dynamo, etc. but they had an opportunity to show a little bit more nuance because then half of their cast was pilots, you know? Yeah. And they had the opportunity to show the, the RAF doing various different things. You could, they could have been returning from and, a sortie. And then sorry to interrupt Matt, but, it, then it reinforces the absolute, like the really annoying thing it reinforces as well. You get that one extra who looks up and goes, where's the bloody Air Force? And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Like, do we need that? There's no like, need for that. No need there's for no that. need. Like, it, it's just, it's like an affront to all those brave pilots who flew to try and keep those lads getting back home. And it's I'm like, sure it just they did wonder on the nothing. beaches, though. I'm sure they wondered where the RAF were. Yeah, I'm sure they did. But, it, then but it, it, the film could have handled it more deftly. It's yeah, it could have. Really. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't want a guy turning around going. Actually, I think you'll find they're flying higher than you can see them, and they're in land. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't want someone were. to do. Yeah, exactly. I don't want someone to do that. But you know, there could someone be. Oh, you know, give it a rest, mate. We're all fighting here, or something. Yeah, you know, there's just. Yeah, yeah. You could have had the myth. You could have shown the myth, and then you could have had someone go. Actually, you know, a bit of clever writing in there could have done it. But it, oh, you know, please, sorry, Matt. <laughs> 
I would have to say, like in some defence of the RAF and their feature in the film, uh, and it's more in defence of the characters in the film rather than the film itself, but you, you basically see two RAF officers that I can think of in Dunkirk. One is sat on top of a plane that is currently sinking into the English Channel, and one has just glide-landed a bullet-ridden Spitfire onto the deck. These are guys that are having a shit day already. <laughs> you know, it's just... De- I would love to see that deleted scene where it, where he punches one of them, just so we just <laughs> do one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my, my best performer, I would say... I'd agree with Rob's, by the way... Um, Jenny's End is fantastic and I, I love it. I love all the versions of Jenny's End actually. It's a, it's a great play. Um, but be, but the best performer for me is a, a Danish movie called April 4th. And that's right. that's about the invasion of, of Denmark by uh, Nazi Germany at the beginning of the war. And I, I love the level of detail they go to that. It's a small production, but it feels great because it it's one of those films that focuses down onto just one small unit of, um, of bicycle infantry doing a, a fighting withdrawal uh, up up through Denmark um, and what the what the the producers on that film the, the production crew did is they took photographs that had been taken during the, the invasion and they recreated them so there's a scene where there's a, a barricade in a, a small Danish village that's been built mm-hmm. uh, and you know they have children in the foreground where children are in the photograph because I think in most cases, or at least in this case, they filmed some of it in the same place that the photograph had been taken. So they were able to, you know, do a now and then almost, but recreate then. Um, and that that's a lovely piece of attention to detail. And it illustrates for me perfectly that even with a tiny budget, just like with Journey's End, compare Journey's End's budget to Dunkirk. And it's, you know, the, the, the disparity is laughable. Yeah. But the, you know, the feeling that the, is created by uh, Journey's End is much more cohesive and it feels it's probably you know it's probably one of the best depictions of um, the, the impending uh, 100 days that, that you, could, you could imagine mm-hmm. uh, but, but that, that Danish movie um, April 4th is is phenomenal it's a small budget but they make it feel essential they make it feel like you're in the situation with with the men and you feel for the characters and that even with the language barrier subtitles it it's just an arresting film you you sit and you watch it and you think wow i'd never actually thought about this particular aspect of the beginning of the war so and that's another thing that rob and i talk about all the time which is movies have the power to be a gateway to looking into things more yeah but if yeah. if you if you you know present a film that's riddled with know easily catchable error and more importantly if it becomes a film which cinematically isn't engaging and and doesn't stay true to historical fact as well then it it kind of it it can sometimes turn an audience off especially if they have like even a modicum of knowledge about that period and what's going on they can Mm -hmm. be like well that's not right yeah you know and there's an argument to be made to say that if that was the case people go away and, and, and check whether they you know they think they're right or not but I think it's an interesting debate that you can have around: Do films make people go and find out more? Um, yeah, and I, and I can I can honestly say that that Danish film did for me. I I went and, and looked into it, and we haven't covered it on the podcast yet, but it's definitely one I'm really looking forward to doing. Definitely. Thank you. Um, I was 
possibly going to bring this into um, the next question, but I'm, I'm going to do it now because it feeds into possibly my biggest movie bugbear. Uh, and I, I state this not on the basis of Rivet County, but hear me out and I'll kind of explain what I've done once I've done it. So, oh, for the benefit of the listener, <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll, you'll hear it. You'll hear it. He's, he's holding a rifle, ladies and gentlemen. So, cocking, firing, bolt-action rifle. Number four, Lee Enfield, for, for the Alley Tally fans out there. Yeah, for the Alley Tally fans <laughs> out there. Not exactly the rifle that I'm comparing against, but I don't own one of those. And then, airborne cricket. Oh, longest Notice day. they sound nothing alike. Yeah. At all. Now, now I did say that this is not Rivet County, because in order to do that, you've actually had to make up a fact and then put that fact on camera, going to the trouble of overdubbing supposedly a K98. Yeah, with the same sound. That's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now you know when when your rivet counter kind of like starts pointing out things like that. I'm I, I'm with them. On yeah. That. yeah, there's a point that there's a limit to it. So something like that, they're just trying to fit that in that in the narrative. So you feel worse when that guy gets killed, but then he dies. Being, but I heard two clicks, and it's like, oh my god, you know, <laughs> clutching my fucking heartstrings. Why don't you try? <laughs> And it's just like, Jesus, that bit for me is like a Western almost. You know, it, it's like he's yeah. got hit by an arrow and as he's dying, like, oh, it feels really Western-y. Yeah, he but should have done a Wilhelm scream. He should have done or something. But yeah, <laughs> I, I remember like when I remember watching that film first time and I'm like, I, even I know, like even the novice would know that a rifle probably doesn't sound like a click clack of one of those tiny little clicker things. Yeah, I've never, yeah. I've never been able to ascertain why they thought that was necessary to include in the film, other than, as you say, it, it pull on heartstrings, it, it, it yeah. elicit an emotional response. It's just, it's not needed. It's, I, I, the thing is, you could have that emotional response by him just being shot. Yeah, yeah. you don't, you don't need to put that in there, do mm. you? Yeah, he could. It, what's the harm in him thinking that the the soldier that just went past is one of his own? There's nothing wrong with that either. It's it's like it's surely going to all that trouble to fit in that clicker is just more hassle. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's my bugbear out of the way. I can calm that's down fine. now. <laughs> right then, okay. So staying on that kind of rivet county theme then, and challenging Kyle, over to you. Uh, so the the main argument is that details don't matter. But if you get the details wrong, doesn't that show you don't really care for the subject? Yeah. I think so, because you're spending millions of pounds getting a movie off the ground. And yet, if you put the people in the wrong kit, the wrong webbing, the wrong weapons, it makes no sense to me because you're already spending millions on a movie. Getting the right equipment and stuff costs no more because you've already budgeted in for this. So it's a sliding scale, I think. If you're a huge production, I expect you to get the stuff like the kit right, the stuff like the tanks right, unless you have, like, you know, some sort of horrific thing on set or we just can't get a tank. Well, CG it in then. We live in a world of CG. It's getting getting cheaper by the year. You can just do it. If you're a lower-level production, I can let it slide because I know what you're going for. So we covered a movie called Baskerfield VC, and that was a like a indie production before indie productions were really a thing. 
So this guy over the course of like six or seven years produced a film about the Baskerfield VC at Arnhem. And it was made in the 60s. And there's bits where uh, airborne guys have air rifles and they might have the wrong Denison smock on. But because there's love put into the movie and because the subject matter is treated with respect and you can tell the story that is trying to be made, you can just let that sort of thing wash over you because you you know that the filmmaker isn't trying to do a bad job. Whereas if I come back to someone like Nolan, who just completely sort of is trying to make a cinematic masterpiece fit within the Dunkirk uh, campaign, sorry, Operation Dynamo, I expect that to be 100% right. And I'm not saying the kit in that movie is wrong, but he's got more more questions to answer from me than that director in the 60s who shot the movie in his spare time you know, went to the yeah. went to the uh, the trouble of filming Centurion tanks at a, at a, a live fire exercise, so he could have tanks in his film. When you go into that level of detail, I let you off because I know that would have been a hard thing to get into be doing in 1960, even now. So it just depends what kind of movie you're doing. I mean, Matt, I mean, over to you. Like, I, I don't know how you feel about the detail thing. I think there's a sliding scale for it, as you say. If you if you're trying to be um uh close to the to the reality if you're trying to be uh, authentic um with the historical detail then yeah you it, it depends on the approach of the filmmaker because if if they aren't taking it seriously and there's there's elements that they could approach and get right but don't and then they get other things right but they don't get other things quite as right then it becomes it snowballs and it reaches that point where you can't enjoy the film as much as a piece of historical um well it's fiction but if it's telling mm. a, a a real event then it becomes even more glaring and it, it once it hits a, a critical mass you kind of go oh this is just too much like okay like if if some random guy's got a, a number four instead of an smle that's fine but if it's all of the guys, if, if there's a Jeep when it should be a, a, a universal carrier, if it's like, um, if it's the wrong kind of aircraft over and over again, and it's CG where they could have gotten the right model in that CG, then it becomes glaring mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. your, and your, your enjoyment of the film dips. And that yeah. is part of it for me, I think. Cause if you're not, if you're not enjoying the film, you just sat there going, that's yeah. wrong. That's wrong. And it's worse. That's wrong. It's worse if you're making a movie that is like it says based on real events. So, say if you're making a movie about Stalingrad, and you stick in, I don't know, uh, pick a tank that's wrong, um, a leopard tank, yeah, a leopard tank go. from the sixties, or sorry, a leopard tank from the eighties, or whatever. That looks wrong on screen, but you've told me your movie is a recreation of the Battle of Stalingrad. So, as far as I'm concerned, oh, they had leopards at Stalingrad because some people just don't care enough. But for the people that do, it's important. And it's also, you're, it, you owe it to history to recreate it the best you can. And even, even within budgetary restrictions, like we've watched some awful movies that try to recreate the battle. But they do a better job because they care about the subject matter. And it comes through on screen, I think. What would you say are the films that can be just entertainment and those that have a duty of care to the detail? Uh, so the movies that you can just enjoy as entertainment are obviously those big adventure films from the 60s and 70s. So Where Eagles Dare, 
Kelly's Heroes. You've got uh, Force 10 from Navarone, things like that. You mean you can enjoy Force 10 from Navarone? Yeah, I like it. Oh, thank God someone agrees with me. Oh, my God. (laughs) Rob likes it. And I'm like, no, Rob, no, it's it's a waste. No, no, no. I know it's a waste of a sequel. It's a waste of a sequel to Guns (laughs) Navarone. I know. But those movies, to me, they're just filmed commando books, aren't they? That's what they are. Yeah, they are, yeah. And and we yeah. don't mind. You read a commando book. I mean, to be to be fair, most commando books I've read are more accurate than some movies. Like because the yeah. artist, <laughs> the artists really go into detail when they don't really have to, which is really it's, it, that's a whole other debate. But anyway, they're like commando books on screen, and they're usually they're never like that serious of of, of plots. You know, Kelly's Heroes is a heist movie just set in the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. it's not trying to it's not trying to show you like you know, a, a recreation of the Battle of Omaha, because it does, that's not what it is. You know, it, you know, it's just trying to say, these lads found some gold, and they happened to be in the US Army at the time. Hit, let's watch their escapades. Fun fun as fuck. You know, it's one of the best movies yeah. from the 70s. Could just as easily be the Italian yeah, job in tanks. It, yeah, it could, be, it could be anyone. It's just a good film. And, and the same with Where Eagles Dare, and the same with, like, you know, Guns and Averone. They're adventure films, but they're set in the, they're set in the war. It's just a great I think, film, yeah, aren't I they? Think the, the thing here is, if you're purporting to make a film about an actual battle or event, then my level of oh that's wrong goes up a little. Yeah. But if it's you know the fact that that one the the um the sniper in Kelly's Heroes has got a Mosna Gant and not a Springfield, I can let that go. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. It doesn't. It, it's that's okay. Like my rivet counter, like antenna is not going off on that because it's mm. just a fun movie and it's it 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 it's forgivable but you know if if you take saving private ryan and the sniper character in that had and the gant you would have been like what why has he yeah. got that that What's doesn't he make doing sense that? Mm. um that's not forgivable because it's it's not only does it begin on d-day it begins with the landings and then it becomes more of a more of that classic adventure um, men on a mission type movie it still yeah. carries some of that gravitas because of that opening scene you've got all mm. that incredible uh, opening sequence where they land on the beach and okay it goes it meanders into inland which is great and I actually really love that for, for the film because no other film really shows that I mean I can't think of a, another big film that's covered the, the inland campaign after Normandy um, yeah. in any any real you know, effort or size or scale, but if if um, if the the sniper character in Saving Private Ryan had had the the wrong rifle, it would have been weird because they get all the equipment stuff correct in that film. Mm. Like that's the only film I've ever seen that has assault vests that covers Normandy up to this point, and that's great. You know, and they drop he drops it when he doesn't need it anymore, like the lads did. You know, it's 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 great. But then talking about films that you know do have the attention to detail so we watched uh we covered it a few weeks ago hamburger hill now for me yes, Ham- a classic. yeah for me hamburger hill is the best combat film about the vietnam war because it doesn't beat around the bush showing you the actual combat was bloody and brutal trying to get up on that hill um it doesn't also pull the punches that a lot of those guys didn't want to be there in 1970 um we are winding down there's a famous saying of who wants to be the last guy killed in vietnam not me um, and it gets that in there. But it's it's the little details that I absolutely love. I covered it in the show. But you've got um, 
development cadre members who are the uh, pro South Vietnamese uh, people in their uh, black pajamas with American kit on, looking after a hamlet. So you barely ever see that. You've got bulldog tanks. There's guys taking the hill, and they've got their load bearing rucks with loads of different stuff on it. Some guys have got shovels. Some guys have got empty sandbag uh, bags. Some guys are carrying mm. loads of ration tins because the movie understands, or the person who wrote the movie, James Karabatos, who was a veteran who was there, in, he was in the 101st, I think. Well, it might have been air cavalry, actually. He understood that once you've took that ridge, you have to then hold it. The movie doesn't show that, but at least the guys look like they're going to be ready to reinforce that ridge once they've taken it. And it's such a small thing. If you didn't know, it's not important. But when you do, it just adds that. It's like chef's kiss. It's a cherry on top. Yeah, it, it's layering, isn't it? it? It adds layers of detail that don't necessarily need to be there for you know the general mm. movie-going audience or for the progression of the plot. But it's little things that you can notice on on rewatch and stuff like that. You know, they're all carrying their um, their jump ropes because that's yep. what that, that's what the guys did. And the attention to detail in that film is great. Um, and I, I, it doesn't do that annoying thing where it goes, oh well, gee, when I get home, I want to do this. It doesn't do that. It does it in a much more ergonomic, flowing mm. way. It progresses the characters in a really nice way. I love that film. Yeah, it's, it's 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 possibly the best Vietnam War film to date, I think, pers- personally. Whereas something like Apocalypse Now, even though that does go into detail, it's you know a, a retelling of Hearts of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. That's an adventure film. But I don't yeah. take that as a serious uh, recreation of the Vietnam War because it uses Vietnam War as a backdrop. Same, same way as Fullmetal Jacket is a film about war's effect on the human psyche that uses Huey as a backdrop. It's not trying to tell you an accurate, you know, an accurate uh, recreation of the Battle of Huey. It only uses it as a backdrop. It just, I think it just depends sometimes in how you're presenting your film. I think that's why movies like The Forgotten Battle really piss me off. Because you make a movie about a Canadian battle and you don't put the fucking Canadians in it until the last 10 minutes. Oh, why didn't I pick that one for my worst offender? <laughs> We'd have been there all night. That's right. But then, but then that's just really annoying because that movie's presented as, oh, look, we, we've picked the Shelt. Oh, wow, a Shelt movie. And then you get, and then yeah, where the fuck is the Shelt in my Shelt movie? It's not there until the last thirty minutes, and even then, it's an afterthought. I just don't understand yeah. it. Like, why? Your best best review I I got of the of the Forgotten Battle was uh, it was one on Twitter. Uh, and it just said the, the worst thing about the Forgotten Battle is that they forgot, they forgot the, battle. the battle. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Love that view. Yeah, I would go on record and say that the Forgotten Battle is worse than Dunkirk. I think. Ooh, ooh, we well, are now on record, then, <laughs> because at least Dunkirk has the you know the 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 filmmaking aspect going towards it. Some of that stuff is great. But mm. Forgotten Battle, it's not bad. It's not bad filmmaking. It's 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 quite. Competent. It's just an awful film that it, they made. It's yeah. just the the narrative that they chose is just dire, and the way that the timeline just doesn't fit it's and contract, completely like, fucked. Like the yeah. timeline is almost as stupid as the the weird temporal decision making process that Nolan went with for Dunkirk. Like at least don't at least Nolan's idea was mildly interesting, and it kind of works, although. Uh, 
Um, it was a payoff for anybody who stayed in the cinema till the end, I think, with Dunkirk. Yeah. They suddenly got to that, like, ten minutes went, that's what's going yeah, on. Even then, like, Dunkirk is smoke and mirrors because it's, it's gimmicky as well. That's another thing I meant to mm. say at the start. War films have become really gimmicky after Dunkirk. So they were like, see Dunkirk in IMAX. Get the full experience in IMAX. And it's like, I saw it in IMAX, thought it was the best thing since sliced bread, because obviously you're in a cinema, you've paid your money, you want to enjoy it. When I got home and watched it, I was like, this doesn't work. This doesn't work on a on a 50-inch flat screen without surround sound. It doesn't work because you made it as a piece mm. of cinema. You didn't make it for me to watch at home. And the same thing with 1917. The one-shot thing, although it's interesting, you don't really need it. It's just a gimmick to get more people behind your movie. We, we're seeing now, I think, war movies in the West. I don't know anywhere else. They're becoming event films. So I don't know what's coming up, what big war movie is coming up next, but I will, I will wait and see what the gimmick is. You know, is it going to be in 3D? Is it going to be scratch and sniff? You know, <laughs> sm- smell the mustard gas along with this mustard gas attack. You know, I, it, it feels like we're getting there now because they're just not as profitable or they don't seem, even though everyone that comes out seems to make massive amounts of money, gets 10 or 15 Oscar nominations. Studios still don't seem to take a risk with war movies anymore like they would... Uh, in the yeah. 60s and yeah, 70s even yeah. I'll go on record really even Saving Private Ryan for the amount of good grace that did for the war movie genre didn't really kick the war movie genre into any massive revitalization. you get Pearl Harbor in 2001 you get We Were Soldiers in 2001 you don't really get another big war film I mean I might be completely talking out my arse but it doesn't feel like you get a big revitalization in the genre it just feels like we're sort of edging along to the next big release like look at operation mince me that just came and went we're not talking about that anymore you see what I'm with good reason i'm led to no of course i but... haven't seen it yet so i can't comment yeah but, but I, the gimmick I, was, I have you know, watched Kyle... the first 10 minutes of it and there was spam plated up put it like a, a posh meal in the cans and i was like what yes. the fuck? yeah like like it was it like it was a feature like they i i don't know maybe maybe some upper upper class luncheons did go oh it's spam in a can and put the, the little can on the Christ. on the dinner plate well i'm like ah, the product placement you would cook the spam you, would, yeah. you know the thing <laughs> the, the thing going back to my thing about private ryan the thing the only good thing that comes out of private ryan is the fact we get banner brothers in the pacific well again yeah, that's that's, that's that's hank's pushing yeah that exactly. period of history that he's interested in with with spielberg and pushing that mm. you know uh, but at least those productions a production take, company going yeah. to make a, a tv series but at least they take great. the time to get it right and they remake all the kit and things like that they they write a great story but they also make sure that it's all it's all correct as well as correct yeah. as it can be um, and you also base your story upon something that's already written and proved to be successful so when you get these uh, something like war pigs have you seen that it's like mickey not mickey rock what's his bloody name Dolph Lundgren, oh. yeah, he plays like a French officer or something, and they have to destroy a V2 thing. And that movie's crap, but it could have been a lot better if it was actually based on an actual mission or something, because then at least I could go, oh, fair enough, you've tried, but they just don't. You know, it's another thing as well. Respect the source material and respect the fucking history, because people died. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to take a moment yeah, to I'm calm fine, down? I'm fine now. <laughs> going, See, this, this is the thing in my own show that I can't really get away with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, so we've touched on this a little bit already, uh, but it's often said, if if this terrible film, this terrible book, this terrible TV series, whatever, if it makes one person go out and learn more, it was worth it. Now, A, is that strictly t- true? And are there, which, what is the go-to example of a film that did that for you? It's, it's not strictly true. I, I, I know we say it on, the, on yeah. our show. We, we say it all the time. Like, and it is. But if it's just one person or it's, it's, you know, if it's a minuscule amount of people, it makes go and look into something, then it's not. It depends. But if it has a weight and an impact and it does make people go away and think, at least think about that period of history that it's depicting, that's a win. And if they then go and buy a book, they go and look into something, they watch a TV series about a doco, or anything like that, that's a, that's a win in my book. But there is, there is a, again, there's another sliding scale there, whereas if, it's, if the film doesn't engage people, then it doesn't, it doesn't make people want to do that. Unless it gets them to, to the point where they're so in enraged by, by how bad it was <laughs> they go and go that that's that can't be right i need to go and look this up and then they go and do that anyway so that there is the opposite end of that i think but i think with with that was me that was my reaction to mincemeat yeah exactly that, like you, with mincemeat you you want to know well is that is that legitimately true is this how it went down yeah did did he actually do that did... in the park what <laughs> <laughs> So that I yeah I I do agree with that premise and that's the premise that Rob and I talk about fairly frequently on the show. But I think there is there's a there's a limit to that. If it if the film is irritating, but just meh, and you don't you just don't want to engage with that period again for a while. In some cases, don't know if you agree with that, Rob. Yeah, I kind of do. Yeah, I mean, I had a thing where I think what was it that I watched. I, I remember like after, and it's probably it's tr- probably true to some degree. I mean, I can't really say if he did or he didn't. But after watching Darkest Hour, which I really did like, I mean, you know, Gary Oldman was really good as Churchill. Um, and it's a better telling of Dunkirk, Operation Dynamo, than Dunkirk did it. Um, and there's definitely a good supercut to be made with both movies. Anyway, and they say so Calais in that one. But that's another thing. I remember coming out of that cinema and I was like, hang on a minute. Churchill never went on the fucking tube. Like he did. Well, he definitely didn't do it when when they think he did. Like, and it, it annoyed me so much that I sort of just put Winston Churchill in a little drawer and didn't think about him for like ages because I was just like, I can't, I can't be doing with this. 
You're telling you're telling me Winston Churchill, this you know went on the train the- and asked people's opinion. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it was all, it was like, I was surprised they didn't start singing the fucking Lambeth Walk because they were like the most, <laughs> they were the most, someone, like, someone on films, a small union jack. Yeah, they were like the most generic <laughs> London-y sort of tube dwellers that you've ever seen. Like you expect one of them to go, I've been living here since the Blitz started and it's so nice to see you, Mr. Churchill. Jelly deal. Yeah. <laughs> give it to these cherries. It was just like, oh my fucking God. Like, it's, that's the, the annoying thing about the Blitz spirit coming through. That we think that that's fine, like, to just stick Churchill on this thing. He could have just asked his aide to go, can you bring me the mass, mass observation reports for this week, please? I'd like to gauge what the public think. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, right? I like that. And I would have gone, mm, nice. You know, they've Mass thought about it. Yeah. But no, we'll stick Gary Oldman in a fat suit on the tube for about 10 minutes and think that's okay. I mean, to be fair, Rob, he was already in the fat suit for the movie. True. Know? But yeah, exactly. I know. But poor Gary. Poor Gary. Anyway, he got, his, he got his Oscar. Everyone's fine. But the movie that made me really want to learn, and it was a, it's an, it's sort of a really, um, it, it lit a fuse in me, actually. Um, it, it is Saving Private Ryan. Um, when it came out, I was five or six. I can't remember now. So I was too old. To, I was too obviously too young to see it in the cinema. And I've, I've written a, a piece on this on our website, actually. But my mum had bought it for my dad for Christmas on video. And it was a big thing. Um, and, I, and I saw it in the cabinet. And I think I'd read something about it or someone had talked about it at school. And I was like, I've got to see this film. I have to see this movie. So then one, one day I was like, oh, mum, can I... Can I watch it with you? And they were like, yeah, great. You want to watch a, a war film, history? Fantastic. So we sat down and watched it together. And that movie, ne- and I, no other movie really has really lit the same spark in me. So from that, I went on to learn about Normandy campaign. My dad bought me some books on the Blitz as well. It just started this snowball that has never really stopped. And then you can go back to that movie. And there's little details in there that when I'm now that I'm older... I can I 100% sort of I'm like oh wow they did that I, I did, never thought they did that you rewatch it it's one of those movies there's a section I I really like it for all of its detractors and we go oh, they don't mention the British and I was like well, it's not a fucking British film of course they're not going to mention the British it was made by an American studio what the hell do you expect it's about right? an American unit in an American sector exactly exactly you know the Mon- yeah. the Monty thing whatever that's another thing but mm. the thing that got me and it gets me every time that I see it and I think, actually, no, wait, these are just normal people doing it in an extraordinary situation. It's where Tom Hanks turns around to the guys and says, well, I'm a school teacher back home. And that hits me every time now. I'm like, he's, he's just a guy. That, it, it, he's, just fight, he's fighting this war, doing this mission, but he is just the person. And that hit me like a freight train when I finally like rewatched it. Um, I think I was like, I think I was at uni actually. Um, and I rewatched it and I was like, hang on a minute. No, these are real people. And it just gives you another, just another way of looking at a war movie. Um, that I think sometimes we don't think we just see an actor in a uniform. And we go, Oh, that's Tom Hanks fighting world war two, but no, not really. That is meant to be a representation of an actual person who could lay, who, you know, does lay down their life for Liberty or whatever. But that's, that's, for me, something that really gets me with movies. Thank you. Well, you guys recently, and I say recently in terms of time of recording rather than time of release, which will be way further down the line. Um, but you guys recently did an episode on depictions of war 
in non-war movies. And uh, thank you for including one of our comments in there as well. But what non-war movie for you tells you the most about the war? Uh, I think for me, I th- the, the the one that we lauded the most was uh, Atonement, wasn't it? And mm. the fact that they, in that, I think it's 10 minutes, maybe even sub 10 minutes, that they get across so much about that that operation um, and, and the, the the evacuation and the men trying to get to Dunkirk and the hellscape that the beaches became uh, is really laudable, you know, for a film that's a, you know, it's a, it's a tragic romance. Um, mm. uh, it, it does a really good job of, of portraying just something in such a small space of time. And it, you, you get lots and lots and lots and lots of nuance in that sequence. And it's a beautiful piece of cinema. It, as a tracking shot, it's amazing. It looks phenomenal, um, and yeah, it just if when you compare that to to Nolan's Dunkirk, it just feels it amplifies how empty Dunkirk feels in Dunkirk. Mm. Um, even even you know before if if you haven't seen that and you've seen the, the John Mills movie Dunkirk from '58, and you compare the two, you it you just it, it pales in comparisons because of how empty it feels. Mm. You've got to make those spaces feel lived in, in order for you to, in order for you to empathise with the, the the characters that are being portrayed. Because if yeah. if they if they haven't got any surroundings to bounce off, then it becomes it becomes mediocre. So there's mm. bits where they're walking through Dunkirk in Dunkirk, and. They they aren't reacting to all the things around them they, because there's nothing around them. That that's one mm. of the, the the things that bugs me. Whereas even even in uh, in Atonement, there's a bit where the French um, lovely inclusion of some French cavalry on the beach are shooting their horses because they did do that. Um, and one of the guys that's with James McAvoy's character is like they can't do that. They shouldn't do that. And he has a very visceral human reaction to something that's not important to the plot whatsoever. It's just going mm. on over there. But it's a reality of war, yeah. and for a, a non-war movie to show something so basic as you know the reality of war, I think that's really laudable. And that's why it's mm. for me it's the the best film, the best non-war film to show war. Yeah, they really put all their all into that section. It's um, mm. it's amazing. Like I I really do. You know that atonement section is is fabulous, and it gets so much in there. Um, and it also, you know, it shows men that they've never been in, never been involved in something like this because the BEF just weren't, you know, they weren't expected to have to hop it back across the channel sharp quick. No one thought that was going to happen. And it yeah. shows the madness of Dunkirk in, in that 10 minutes, you know, and the 2004 Dunkirk series did it as well. Have obviously had more time to, um, and Dunkirk just, I'd never feel like any of those lads are in the situation as much as they could be. Yeah, the only time I feel where people are look like they're trying to get off the beach and get out away from this madness is when they're on the mole. But when they're away from the mole, they never I never feel like when they're sitting in that boat and Harry Styles is, is talking out of bollocks. I never feel like they're in the BEF anymore. It it's sort of the, prof- the the soldiering aspect goes out of it. But anyway, the thing, the one for me that I think gets it right, or you know, to a modicum of of, of rightness. Is Forrest Gump, um, because yeah. there's the Vietnam section in that is ten times in, better than it needs to be. 
Um, it shows you every, every cliche of the Vietnam War movies we've ever had. You've got Fortunate Son, 30 or 40 Hueys going past, you know, how, how they make it. They do that great thing that 90s movies do where they use effects and you can't tell because they're putting a lot of attention in. Um, and then it just shows the ground combat in Vietnam um, being ambushed. That ambush sequence is fantastic and it has no right to be. It doesn't need to be. Um, it's really, really well done. Um, there's a great uh, behind-the-scenes uh, documentary that shows you how they actually did it all. It's really, really good. Um, and Dale, I think Dale Dye was the, uh, the the advisor for that sequence. Um, and, you know, obviously, Dale Dye works on it. It's going to be pretty good. But then what Forrest Gump also does, and I know it's this, you know, Forrest Gump's like a heightened retelling of history. Everything is hyperbolic. Um, but they also come home, and they show you how veterans felt about the war at the time and they show you the anti-war movement when not many Vietnam war movies actually do that. They hint at it through characters in combat or in jungles, but they never really go home and show you how people feel at home. So I I really like that. You get the combat, then you get the anti-war movement directly after, and it's a nice little juxtaposition. And I just think that's really good. And I love Forrest Gump anyway. It's 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 great. Yeah, who would? Yeah. So to start to round things up, um, why is it that it's specifically war films compared to other genres that get held up to this level of extreme scrutiny? Like there's not really vivid counters for other genres. So why why war films? I would say there are. So if you take you know a film like Senna or some of the other like F1 movies there are definitely river counters for those kind of historical movies where they go, that car's not the correct car and that it, it, it shouldn't sound like that and that's not correct. He's wearing the wrong livery. You know, within a niche like that, there's definitely river counters. Within, you know, I th- you know if you take um, disaster movies and it's a real disaster, so like take, a, take the tsunami or, or even um, Chernobyl, if you take those and people get things wrong in those, people point them out and they do they do kind of pick at them. Um, so yes, I, Titanic, I, I, I suppose. I would say, yeah, I, and I, I would say that um, comparing war movies to those, it there are people that hold them up to scrutiny of a similar level, but I think war movies for such a long period of time were the more common of all of those. So that mm. you know. 50s, 60s, 70s, war movies were coming out every week, almost. And it certainly felt like it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think people people feel that they can they can you know hold a, a war movie up to to mm. a little bit more scrutiny, especially one that is telling an event, retelling it that, that you know, historical mm. action or something like yeah. that. I think then people feel that they can they can pick a little bit more. So if you took like, you know, Towering Inferno, you can't really pick at that historically because it's just a film about you know, um, a tower block on fire um, yeah. in the seventies, <laughs> and in an office block. Yeah, and I think as well that like, my point. A fireman re- could come in and go, "No, that's absolute bollocks." Like, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, no, there's no way they would be doing that. But anyway, yeah, go wrong. No, no, no. I, I've written down here like I haven't seen someone critique Goodfellas, which is telling things that happen. Like that's Henry Hill's life. Um, he's a real person. Yeah, um, I've never seen someone go. Oh, well, the scene when it goes into the prison cell, he's wearing the wrong Adidas jacket. I've never heard anyone do that. But we- but yet when you watch, like, pick a war film out of your head that's got, like, the wrong webbing or the wrong jump jacket or whatever, people pick up on it 
And you're meant to sit there and go, yeah, like that's really bloody important. And I think, I think it's because people just, there seems to be a bigger sort of collective understanding where it comes to history. People seem to think they know everything, even if they don't sometimes, or that, or because of you've got the internet on your phone, you can quickly search it up and go, you know, what jacket is that? What belt is that? And then you can go, oh, oh look, they got it wrong. But I think it's, also because it those things actually happened in a way that we can we can touch and watch and feel whereas something like goodfellas that happened to one person and unless you're a criminal or, or you're in the mob that's such a uh you know like a secret society you're not really going to know if it's true mm. or not there's an well, absolute element of shared cultural heritage to it as well that's it that's what i was trying to get where, at. Yeah. where yeah. people are like well you know my grandfather was at was at dunkirk and he yeah. definitely wasn't carrying a number four uh you know or you know mm. anything like that and and i think people do feel a little bit of ownership and right and, you know, rightly so there's a discussion to be had about that as well but I, I think people do feel with war movies and because it was a sacrifice. If you take world war two movies in their own right, it was a sacrifice for Liberty and you know, the, the betterment of Europe because uh, and it was against evil. Mm. So every, everyone has a, has a stake in that and they can feel like, well, this has to live up to almost, you know, yeah. the memory of these people. And I, it, if you, if you consider that not every film gets its equal amount of scrutiny, I don't think either. No. Um, and it depends on the, the section of society that is doing that scrutiny because you can have people that are you know very much into history know their stuff and they can scrutinize a film on one level but then uh, an average cinema goer might only scrutinize it on the level of that didn't feel quite right mm. so it depends on the cinema goer as well i think and i also feel like as well as i said earlier well, i shouted it didn't i people died you know Millions, millions of people got killed over this war or over, over this part of history you're showing in your movie. And a lot of people who died were people's family members. So, I mean, like, you know, people might not growing up not knowing their fathers. They might have grown up not knowing their grandfathers or their uncles and brothers. So if you watch a movie and those people, it's somewhere where they fought, you're going to feel an attachment to that and you're going to want that representation to be as good as it can. So that, you know, I think the further we're getting away from the actual events, the worse the representation might become because we haven't got anyone sitting there and going, well, hang on a minute, I was there. It wasn't like that. You know, these people are becoming a distant, are going to become a distant memory veterans wise. And the more we go, and I've said it on the pod, the further we get away from these events, the more so these films have to be right. You know, if you're making a film that is a recreation of a battle, please get it as best as you can with the budget you've got. If you're making something like Kelly's Heroes, go nuts, because it's fine. You're not you're not portraying your movie as something that actually happened. But if you're going to present to me a movie that is a recreation of a battle, get it fucking right, because you owe it to the people that fought that battle in the first place that your movie even got greenlit. Yeah. Yeah, on that point of moving further away, you know, I invite all our listeners to go back to season one, episode three, and listen to uh, Dean Strachan on why Braveheart is shit. <laughs> I think I think you've got to take films as a part of the cultural historiography as well. So it's it's all of these elements are feeding into our historical understanding of events, and films have a duty to be, you know, isn't 
well, they don't have a duty, unlike, you know, um, actual written histories have a duty to be as unbiased in their, um, their mm. approaches as they can be. Good histories, anyway. Films don't have that. But for me, I always enjoy it when they do attempt it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, we will give you marks for effort. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like you can, you can let a lot slide. I think I said it earlier. You can let a lot slide, but if a movie's trying its best, and you can clearly tell that, and you tell there was a lot of love and affection put into it, because it does not get it wrong. At the end of the day, these movies are entertainment, regardless of topic. Um, you know, they might be harrowing, they might be hard to watch, but they are a form of entertainment. They may not be entertaining, but they are a form of entertainment. So you have to try to get that trade off. And if you can do it, then bloody well do it. And if you've got millions to spend, get it right. Because there are people you can hire that do it for you. It's it's not like that. We seem to think people seem to think that movies get made. A director sits there and does everything. But that's not how it works. There's a crew. There's a catering department. There's all these other people. It's a big triangle of people that make the movie work. And people sit there and seem to think that it's the director's fault every every 10 minutes. Or, you know, it, it just that's how movies get made. Well, if you don't fucking know, then go and find out and then come back to me. And then I'll tell you, you know, it's not the director's fault. It's not Tom Hanks's fault. It's the fucking historical advisor or it's the, it's the armorer or it's the the costumer who could only get that certain thing because the budget's in place. You've got to, de- de- that's the thing we do on our show, deconstruct the movie, put it back together again, then think about it. Well, thank you very much, guys. I am going to bring the uh, clapperboard down on uh, movie night there and shout cut. Uh, but thank you very much, guys. That was that was an absolutely epic round. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us on. been great fun. Although, fun. You feeling Jesse? better? Uh, well, I, I put on my Twitter, this will be cathartic, and it certainly has. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we got one response that said, is this going to be a really long episode? And I had to answer, <laughs> yes. Very much a director's cut extended edition, uh, and I think. In the words of Charlie Brooker, please don't cut some of this up and put it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about Robbie and Matt, well, you can start by catching the outstanding weekly podcast, Fighting on Film. Uh, and that is out on all podcast platforms and available at fightingonfilm.com as well. And you can uh, you can subscribe to them on Patreon, but not until you've subscribed to us first. <laughs> yeah. um, you can follow Robbie on Twitter at rm underscore mill underscore history and Matt at historic firearm. Guys, it has been an absolute blast. Thank you. Thank you so Our much pleasure. for having us on. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, a whole season in advance. It'll get you the invite to put questions to future guests and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thank you very much for listening and stay angry. Bye bye. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. 
This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.